Hi everyone, it's Jamie. I just want to share with you that my new book, Toxic Relationship Recovery, is available now. This book is for anyone who is healing after a harmful relationship, but it's also for people that are looking to identify toxic traits, toxic behaviors, and toxic strategies that get used upon people every single day. The second half of the book teaches you strategies to heal your inner voice and find your authentic self after experiencing this type of harm. I'm looking forward to you all reading it and hearing your feedback from it. It's available today. Find Toxic Relationship Recovery wherever you buy books. This is Unlearned, a self-rising production. I'm Jamie. And I'm CA. And we are your hosts. This is a podcast all about deconstructing who we are, and exploring who we are becoming. Yay, we're back. Hello, everybody. We're back with how we doing out neurodivergency. there. Neurodivergency. We're actually not really sure if we're going to have to do another part of this, so I'm not even going to speak on whether or not this is like <laughs> the final because there's a very high possibility we might be furthering this uh, to another episode. For now, today, for sure. Yeah, today we talked. Uh, last time about neurodivergency in the self, the interaction with yourself. And today we're venturing into a very complex, nuanced conversation around communicating, understanding, clarifying your neurodivergency with a partner. Um, We're going to be talking in this episode primarily with a longer term partner or the person you're married to it's going to be like that intimate partner setting because we can, like we said, there's complexities when you talk about this with family members and friends and coworkers and your workplace. But for now, we're just going to kind of focus on the partner interchange in this episode. Yeah. Mainly what we wanted to talk about, we'll just launch right into essentially one of the huge issues that comes up for couples where one person is neurodivergent and the other isn't, or both people are neurodivergent um, because it's not a monolith. (laughs) Even if both people are neurodivergent, whether that's ADHD or autistic or some combination of the two, everybody's manifests in unique ways. And so what oftentimes happens when you're living and sharing space with somebody and you're sharing intimate space with them is pretty like sooner uh, sooner than later it will come up that there will be discrepancies in um sensory needs and then trying to navigate how to best accommodate those varying sensory needs between the two people in a way that feels conscientious and equitable and healthy <laughs> all of those things is when i tell you incredibly challenging incredibly challenging however not impossible. And that's what we really kind of want to dive into some of that nuance during this episode. I mean, if you think about the sensory stuff that can come up, I mean, this is not going to be able to capture all of the different ways, because remember, this is a huge spectrum. Some people experience some of the stuff we're going to talk about very severely. Some people experience it in a lighter, not as invasive way. We're going to be talking about some of the sensory stuff, but obviously there's other there's other integrations that happen in neurodivergency, like 
processing and discrepancies around the processing, uh, misunderstandings, reassigning of narratives for your partner. Like that was your intention, right, CA? And so these are all these things that we're going to try to cover. Uh, but right off the bat, why don't we come, you know, let's hit, you know, one of the hard, harder ones first, which is really coming to an understanding of, first of all, anchoring on the previous episode, you know, some of the stuff we've understood about ourselves, right? So I'm going to say this for anything. You guys know, I just wrote a book on this. This is not just for neurodivergency. I'm going to say this as a as a premise for healthy dynamics. You have to know yourself. And I don't mean flowery, like we gotta know ourselves before we, that's not, I'm not saying it's a contingency. If you're already in a relationship, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in order to articulate and advocate with conviction to our loved ones, especially to our partners, we genuinely have to be doing that like reflective work on ourselves. Okay. So with neurodivergency, this is what are some of the things that I am going to have to advocate for, right? But in non-neurodivergent language, this would be talking about your values, really anchoring down in the things that are important to you, really anchoring down in the, the key prioritizations of communication, things that are important to you as someone in a relationship. Okay. Let's go into the neurodivergency though. So like when we're looking at that as a fundamental, like I said, for some, it's not going to be as strong as sensory. It might not be uh, presenting as the main issue that comes up with your relationship might not be sensory. For this episode, we're starting there. Mainly, I honestly think it's because we've both seen it predominantly show up for our loved ones that have ADHD, but also we both have experienced this pretty much in our relationship. So we're starting here for a reason, mainly because it's a very misunderstood conflict that occurs. So why don't we start with that, CA, like make it like with some examples. So I'm going to, I'll just use like a personal example, just because that sometimes is easiest to just go there. So I just like hit my table. (laughs) Sorry, everybody, if you heard a giant knock. Okay. Before I realized that I was neurodivergent and I had sensory thresholds that I was completely neglecting and just like brushing over like it was not even a thing because I literally didn't understand that this was happening to me. I would at certain points in my like family interaction, just like what felt like from an outsider's perspective. And sometimes even for me, like observing myself in these situations, I'd be like, whoa, CA, like what just happened? It would feel as though I would go from zero to 60 and like immediately just like snap, like one minute, everything's fine. And then like one little thing would happen. And then I would like completely lose it. And people would, I think I mentioned this in the previous episode, right. Of like, people would be like, whoa, like, why are you freaking out? Because somebody turned the faucet on and it's like, well, no, like it's literally not about that one tiny input. It was about everything that happened leading up to it. And so, for example, um, during like car rides, we don't, a lot of people might not be aware of this. I personally wasn't even aware of it. And I am neurodivergent until I started paying attention. 
take a car ride. Say you are driving completely by yourself and there isn't any other like people in the car to give input. The act of driving itself is already just all by itself. Such a high sensory experience. You have the road noise. You have the fact that you're processing a ton of visual and audio stimulus, like stimuli, like all at once, like you, and you have to be paying attention. So that's all going on. And then there's like, there can even be some like emotional, like little low level anxiety, like just making sure that like you're staying safe on the road and driving safely and all of that. Now put on top of that, and like, you're trying to remember where to turn and not get too distracted and all of that. So put on top of that, now add other people into the car. And now maybe somebody's trying to talk to you and carry on a conversation with you. So now you've got your partner in the car and they're like, yay, road trip. Let's have a nice convo together. And you do, and it's going well for a little while, right? You're chatting and the conversation's going well. And what sometimes gets missed is as time goes on, like that buildup of stimuli it's coming into your nervous system and you are your brain is doing everything it can to keep up with all of the stimuli. And what would happen with me is I wouldn't be aware of that. And all of a sudden, like one thing would happen, like, I don't know, like we missed a turn or uh, the, you know, it started raining and we had to turn the windshield wipers on. And now I'm listening to the sound of windshield wipers. Like, seemingly silly little things. And I would literally just like not be able to handle myself and like, just like start having like an emotional breakdown. And what I realized is because I wasn't paying attention to how much sensory stuff my body was trying to process. And so now that I am aware of that, when I go on car rides, it's not that I like can't handle any sensory stimulation. It's just that I'm so much more cognizant of how much I'm processing. And when it starts to like, I'm becoming more body aware and being like, okay, when I can feel myself starting to like get tense and starting to like struggle to integrate new information that's coming in, whether that's the kids from the back seat or my spouse asking me a question about where I want to stop for lunch and that feeling like such an overwhelming question, like that's not an overwhelming question, but like when it feels like that to me, I'm like, ooh, I think I'm hitting some of my limits here. Like I'm, I'm starting to get real close to my threshold and now I'm able to catch it before it happens. And I will literally communicate to my partner and say, I am genuinely incapable of answering that question. And therefore I'm going to let you choose the place for lunch and I'll literally be okay with whatever you pick. I'll literally just, I'll be fine. And I will put my headphones on so that I can block out some of the like, road noise and things like that. And I'll just say like, I just literally need like half an hour to just like disappear. And I communicate that to my partner. And we, you know, have, he and I have gone through a lot to like get to the place where we are of like him understanding where this is coming from and what that's like. And here's the thing. My partner does not experience sensory thresholds in the way that I do. And so it definitely like in the beginning came off as like, he was like confused. Like, I don't, I don't understand. Like what, what you're disappearing. Like, I thought we were having a nice conversation and then we can, we don't have to get into the whole, like why, how there can be, you know, other factors that get into like why that conversation gets misunderstood. But like, 
from strictly a sensory perspective, because that's not something that he has experienced internally inside of himself, it was difficult for me to figure out how to communicate that to him to be like, I, I almost don't know how to describe it, but it just starts to feel like over. And that's why people use sensory overload. Like that's the word people use to describe it. It was just like too much. And so I remember trying to describe it at, um, with like physical intensity. I'd be like, it, it, it would be as though you had been treading water for an hour. And then all of a sudden somebody's like, here, now wear this 20 pound backpack and keep treading water. Like, you, you, you are going to sink. You're going to, after a while, your muscles are already fatigued. And then somebody puts a 20 pound backpack on you. You're going under, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, unless you're a net trained Navy SEAL or something. And so that is kind of like one of the ways that I would try to, when, when words would fail, I always use analogies. And so, and it's easy to understand like physical limitations for people. And so if you're listening and you're struggling to like communicate those types of like sensory thresholds to somebody who doesn't experience it, maybe try something like that, like using an analogy, something physical to help them be like, oh, okay, well. And so even though he doesn't experience that in the same way that I do, he's able to respect and understand where I'm coming from. And, and I do the best that I can to catch it when I can communicate it the best that I can when it's happening in real time, which even in itself can sometimes be a struggle. Because sometimes when that sensory threshold starts getting really high, you start to lose some of your verbal communication skills. And this can be a whole other layered um, struggle, which is what I mean when I say this situation, this topic we're talking about today is so incredibly nuanced and there's no way that we're going to be able to like touch everything, but I'm doing the best that I can. So that's just like an initial example to kind of start us off with, which is how to start like, first of all, becoming aware inside of yourself of what your sensory experience is like if you are a person who experiences thresholds. And so I, for me, I used that example of the car ride and that's mostly having to do with like auditory stimulation, but there are a lot of other types of stimulation coming in as well. For other people, um, sometimes like smell can be a really big one. And that can be extremely like zero to 60 for some people, like a, a particular smell can just really send them really fast. Then there's uh, physical stuff. So this is you get you hear a lot of conversations about like clothing texture and like the way that I don't know, like, even just like in a car, the way that your body is vibrating the entire time, like low level vibrating because of the way that the car is moving, that is a physical stimulation. So there are a lot of different types of like physical stimulation and, so, and sensory stimulation. So maybe it's important to take some time, like Jamie said, to just start like, really like logging your sensory internal experience over the next like couple of weeks. If this is work that you're just starting to do and understand about yourself, trying to figure out, okay, what is my sensory experience like inside of me? And like what things stimulate me and overstimulate me? And we use the word triggers, but like sometimes that word is too, I don't know. I feel like it's almost overused because for me, like anything has the potential to be a sensory trigger. So like maybe there are certain things that are like, easily send me from zero to 60, like the sound of people chewing. I know misophonia is like a huge thing for a lot of people. That's the word for it. If you like hate the sound of people chewing, it's called misophonia. Anyway, 
But in general, just start noticing that. So that way you're able to start communicating that to the people around you, particularly your partner, if you're sharing physical and intimate space with that person, like it's going to be important for you to be able to even begin communicating. Here's a place that starts to feel like a struggle for me. And then we can start having a conversation about how, and this is really what the meat and potatoes of what we want to get into for this episode. Once you're able to kind of like identify some of those limits, some of those thresholds and some of those needs and you're able to start communicating those things, now you start to get into the nitty gritty of how to actually compromise and balance that with your partner. Right. So this is how I try to help because it models a lot of just like basic conscious relationship practices, which is, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to like speak over a lot of people's lived experience here because I don't want to assume that the relationship you're currently in is completely able to like have some of these dialogues in a healthy way. I mean, some people are, some people aren't. And so like, I want to give you some like different takes of how some of this stuff can actually go when you're in a state of awareness of your needs, right? So you're in a state of awareness of your needs. You actually did what CA just did, walked yourself through some of the work this is where trauma, harmful relational patterns, people's egos, people's pride, things get in the way. And when someone looks at me and goes, Jamie, okay, yeah, I know that that's really hard for me, but there's actually no safe way to have that conversation with my partner. And let's say they've never hurt you. They actually aren't even that, like they're maybe let's say they're not even emotionally that problematic. Notice though, reactivity to your own advocacy, which is actually something I would point out is something that needs to be worked on in a relationship. All right. So if someone actually stands in their own truth and says, I'm telling you with conviction that this sensory input actually causes me pain and you are met with a partner that doesn't trust your narrative, thinks you're being manipulative thinks you're just trying to control them or I mean the whole trust like they literally just don't believe you they just don't believe you they or they think you're weak I'm strong enough to handle that why aren't you I can sit in a car with kids for five hours why can't you and it's like they're taking their lens and they're applying it to your life especially when you don't have a partner that has any neurodivergency this can be catastrophic for certain partnerships. This is st- guys, this is stuff that can lead to divorce. And I'm not I'm not trying to mince my words here. These are actual things that can lead to divorce. Why? Because when a couple is dealing with this and their partner looks at them and says, "You're never going to be valid in my mind. Your pain is never going to be valid. You're just not strong enough. I'm strong enough to endure a car ride for 5 hours and you're not." And what are they actually communicating? They're saying, I don't trust that you know that this is painful to you. I don't believe that this is painful to you. And I refuse to believe it. And even if it is, even if I entertain it for a second, you're not strong enough because I can do it. So why would that lead to like a divorce, separation, or a breakup? Um, That's incredibly painful when someone can like distill their thought process that deep down. 
I want to give an example of like how this becomes so complex. Okay. Let's say I have a sensory need around, not even this, like a demand around like the clothes I wear. Okay. And me and Tia will try to like, you know, I'll model this in some way, but like basically CA is my partner and she is, she is like, oh, Jamie's birthday's coming up. Okay. Um, I'm going to get her like, I know she's really into like cozy things. So I'm going to buy her like a shawl. Okay. And you wrap it and you give it to me and I open it and I'm like, oh my God, this looks so cool. And I immediately touch it. And inside of my brain, I go, this is so thoughtful. And I don't think I'm ever going to be able to wear this. Like my brain says that immediately, not because I'm trying to be cruel, not because I don't have gratitude around the gift, but truly my hands are touching that material and my, my immediate, some people actually get pain. I've actually had that with sensory stuff with clothes before. I've gotten like weird nerve pain when I get certain material, like materials that touch my skin. And so let's say it's that intense. Someone touches it and they go, oh, and they put their hands up and they, cause they know social norms, right? Oh my God, thank you so much for this gift. Okay. So she lives with me. She's my partner, right? I put it up in the closet. This is why I'm walking you guys through this example, because it's a real thing that happens in relationships that is incredibly important to be able to dialogue about. Okay. It's a few weeks after my birthday and CA comes in the room and goes, Jamie, like that box with the shawl is like, you like, it never got taken out. It's like, I can see it. It's like on the shelf. Right. And I look at her and I'm like, I, I, I love it. I'll wear it eventually. Right. Because I don't have enough advocacy yet. Right. I'm going to give you different scenarios. I don't know what to do. So all I say is maybe eventually I'll wear it. And my hope is maybe I can endure it for like one night out. I don't know. But like, I don't have the plan right now. So I don't have an answer. So I'm just going to like buy time. Right. So that's what I do. But then in another scenario, here we go. Ready? I'm going to walk you through different scenarios. I'm buying time. Eventually, what are we allowed? What do people do? I hope you forget about it. Sometimes people do. Sometimes people don't. Right. But notice there wasn't any skill development there. This is why I try to explain to people, it's like, yes, you can buy time. Yes, things are forgotten about, but there really wasn't any actual skill development there. And I'm not throwing y'all who do this under the bus. I'm just saying there isn't an opportunity to practice when there is bought time or forgotten experiences like that, right? So now someone's going to look at me and be like, oh my God, so you're telling me I have to like develop a whole skill set around this? And I'm like, honestly... Ideally, that would develop a healthier relational communication skill than non or like non engagement. Okay. All right. So let's say they do choose. Okay. They already are aware, like CA just talked about. And here's the level up. I am aware, but we know, go back in the old episodes, stages of healing. Aware is not where we can get stuck. We can't get stuck in awareness right? We have to get to belief that it's important enough to advocate for, which would lead to conviction. Cool. Great. 
So now I'm like, nope, this is important enough for me to talk about. So here we go. You give me the prompt. You go, hey, babe, I saw the shawl. Like, is everything okay with the gift? Like, I really, I was like trying to think of like something cozy, something you could curl up with, with a movie. Like, I really actually spent a long time looking for that gift. So like, I just, I'm, I'm not trying to be, you know, like mean. I just was curious, like, is there something wrong? And I look at my partner and I go, I need to explain something about the shawl. When I touched it, it it's one of those types of materials and I don't know what blend it is, but it really activates that sensory overload feeling in my body. And, you know, hopefully you've talked about a little of this before, but if you tell your partner this, this is where, so here we go with the different scenarios. We can have a partner whether or not they are neurodivergent or not, if whatever the, sorry, double in time, whatever that was, whether or not they're neurodivergent. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> if, if you have a partner that sees your narrative as valid and trustworthy, they're going to hear it and believe you. They're going to believe you. All right. And this is the both and, right? So this is where I want you to like embody this. Okay. The both and is it is important communication wise to look at your partner and say, listen, there's two things going on here. I love thoughtful gifts and your gift was thoughtful. I know you took you time. I know you're you're a great gift giver. And I know that this particular shawl was something that you were envisioning like movie time and stuff. And that is literally so beautiful to me. That is actually the gift. Like I'm receiving that energy and it's a beautiful thing that you did for me. What I need to explain, and this is, it, it's unfortunate, is that I, I'm not going to be able to like actually keep it on my body without experiencing like pain or like a sensory demand that's like overloading me. So this is where the partner not having both and might go all or nothing, right? The opposite of it, right? Where it's like, okay, so you hate it. So, so you hate it. So you, so you, so nothing I do matters. And like, I'm never going to get any presents for you ever again, because um, Miss sensitive over here can't handle anything that I'm never going to buy you clothes. Then. I'm never going to buy you clothes. Like it, like I, I literally can't buy anything, honestly, because you're just like a walking, like snowflake that can crumble into nothing. Could you just think about, just hear every narrative, every bit of vitriol that I just slung at that person. I called them weak. I called them incapable. I went completely all or nothing. I said, there's no point in ever buying anything for you ever again. Like I'm giving you a hyperbolic response because when I tell you these are real things that come out of people's mouths and it's heart wrenching because all that person is trying to do is not trying to hurt that person's feeling. They're trying to explain the nuance behind how that gift is not really going to be able to be utilized the way that person intended it to be utilized. And then this is the kicker, right? And this is where many neurodivergents are going to be like, preach. Yes, exactly. This is literally my reality. What is the, what happens 
what happens? What's the default like base that people fall to, right? They go, I can't have those conversations because I've tried to, and that's the reaction I've gotten. So I either have to put the shawl on once or twice a year and deal with the nerve issues that go on while I'm wearing it. Or I have to like basically play pretend. Like I have to be like, oh, I got a stain on it. Oh, the dog ripped it. Oh, like I have to play into a charade where you're justifying that it's okay I don't wear it if a stain is on it, but it's not okay if I wear it if it caused me sensory overload and pain. Think about that for a second, right? So you have to play the part. You have to do the lying or deception. You have to endure it (laughs) if you're getting the constant all or nothing, I'm never going to buy you a present again, right? So this is why I walked you through the different scenarios because when you have a partner that actually looks at your neurodivergency as completely valid and a thing that you are working on. You are not working on it to get rid of. You're working on it to be identifying more and more things that you cannot advocate for, right? And then they can trust you, right? When they say, oh, that's a lot for me. They don't have to give, oh, give me all the reasons why. You just are like heard, understood, right? But when you have a partner that doesn't see it as valid, And many partners, unfortunately, don't even realize what they're saying when they say those things, right? It is, when I say that in and of itself can be a trauma, it is. Because it's like you realize as you're hearing them talk that if I try to advocate for myself, that I might as well be invisible because I'm not seen I'm not heard, I'm not understood. And just like all the years that I had to adapt to all the neurotypical things in my world, I have to do this as well. I don't get to advocate for myself in this relationship. And that's what I mean when I say these things can break relationships. Mm -hmm. And here's where I really want to like speak some empowerment into your self-advocacy because most people who are neurodivergent have trauma by the time they get to adulthood because literally living in a neurodivergent body in a non-neurodivergent friendly world is trauma, period. So most of us have had to endure sensory assault most of our lives. Let's, I And I don't use that word lightly because that is what childhood feels like for a lot of neurodivergent people. It literally feels like every single day you are getting beat up sensorily speaking. And because you don't have a voice, especially when you're think about before you're pre but when you're pre-verbal. Literally before you can even speak for the first several years of your life from like 1 to 3 to 4 before you can like really start forming sentences, you're just like living in a world that is just experiencing itself at you 24/7 and you're just like cool, this is my life and you just have to endure it. And then even by the time you get verbal and like early verbal, four, five, six, you're trying to communicate. You don't have vocabulary. So what do you say? Oh, it's spicy. It's, it's scratchy. I don't like it. And you like, you just don't have a lot of like words to describe what's happening. And then most of us were raised in a generation that completely just like 
didn't care about any of that and was just like, suck it up, suck it up, suck it up. Like, that's how I was raised. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. And so then you just learn to mask and you learn to endure and you learn to almost dissociate through a lot of those sensory experiences because that's all, that's the only tool you had left at that point. And so by the time you get all the way to adulthood and you've endured like decades, like two decades, sometimes three before some of us actually get diagnosed with our neurodivergence. And then all of a sudden you're trying for the first time in your life to like identify what your sensory thresholds are and actually speak about them and advocate for them. As soon as you get hit back with those very familiar narratives that you grew up with, it's very common for you to then fall back into that same like fawn response role of you're right. It's I'm being too sensitive. Like I just, it's your, yep, exactly. And so this is where it's for the neurodivergent person in this dynamic. This is the huge like skills development area for us to be working on is what I've worked on for the last several years since I've known that I'm neurodivergent is like literally validating to my own self that my neurodivergency is real and valid and like worth advocating for and grounding myself in that. So that way, once I, like we've talked about before, you go to belief, you go to conviction. Once you feel convicted in that, it's a little bit, it it adds a little bit more empowerment behind those advocacy situations and conversations that you have to have. Because when this time, now that you've got that conviction, this time when you get hit back with that old narrative that you grew up with, you're going to be less likely to stand for it because you're going to go, no, like I literally am unwilling to accept somebody invalidating my experience anymore. I won't accept it anymore. I am creating an environment for the first time in my life where I'm allowed to actually be me and feel safe to be me. And guys, if you can't feel safe to be yourself in your own home, where can you? And I'm saying this as strongly as I can because so many neurodivergent people are suffering in this world and literally do not have even one safe space where they are just actually completely free to just be themselves. And I'm letting you know right now that like, if you're an adult and you're trying to like live independently or with a partner, regardless of what that situation is like, your own home should at least, at the very least, be a safe space for you because we all know that the world very much oftentimes is not. And we can talk about that could be another episode, how to advocate for yourself out in the world, but we are talking about your intimate relationship. And if you're gonna share a life with somebody, and share a home with somebody, that person should also want you to be able to safely be yourself. And if they don't want that for you, I would strongly reevaluate that relationship. Well, and this is what I say. It's, it, it really does track into like core fundamental perceptions of why certain people are in relationships. Like there are certain people who are like, I went into it and I don't want to change you. Like I'm going to have to learn and adapt and understand like what makes you tick. But my goal in this relationship is not to form you into who I want you to be. Right. So that's where, I mean, like these core fundamental values of relationships. It's like when you start understanding that your partner, let's say is 
like, okay, for example, like you would never look at your partner and this does happen. People are like, oh, that happens. I'm like, yeah, I didn't realize this until I was an adult that like adults can form new allergies, which makes sense. I don't know why I didn't think that, but they can, (laughs) they can form new allergies. And could you imagine being with your, like, just think about this. It's so absurd. But could you imagine being married to your partner for, let's say, 10 years? And let's say, I don't know, you were Italian and lots of pastas and cheeses and beautiful like dishes that came together and you love to cook and your partner started getting really sick. And it was like slowly over the course of time, you're like, whoa, like in, you know, your partner looks at you and he's like, I don't know, this actually maybe is food related. I'm going to go get some tests. And they get some testing and they're realizing they have like an intolerance to wheat or gluten or whatever. Um, they've developed an autoimmune disease, whatever. Right. And could you imagine looking at your partner and being like, just suck it up. Like, I'm not going to change the way I cook. I'm not going to do anything different for you. I don't care. I don't care. I literally don't care. So you either eat my pasta and you're in pain or I don't care. Right. And it's like, of course they can learn how to cook for themselves. Of course they can. But do you see how that can become so such a divide in the relationship of like, yes, of course they're going to go through heartbreak because maybe they do enjoy like, you know, like not the, like, not the, 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 they don't want the gluten-free pasta. Okay. But it's about like doing that inventory with yourself and being like, you're right. You're not going to be able to maybe, you know, experience the exact same dishes that you had before, except when you listen to your partner and you believe your partner and you love your partner, it's as important to adapt around the thing that creates like a lot of pain or disruption in their life. And if you can't do that, then be honest with yourself. Stop resenting them for not eating pasta, right? You're at a party and you're like, can't give him the pasta. You know, he's going to have cramps for the third three days. Oh, like, you know, it's like, dude, don't be with a partner like that, Right? It's like, you see it every day. That's actually why I get really uncomfortable. I mean, I'm never going to name names here, but like there are some people in my life where I'm around them and there's like couples that are around me and like I watch that happen and it is really disturbing to me when I see them openly mock something that causes their partner pain. And I genuinely, I'm like, this is witnessing problematic behavior and it makes me incredibly uncomfortable and notice it's not always going to be food related it's something like it's like you know she she says something like oh do you mind like you know let's say this couple's over and visiting oh do you mind turning that can- like do you mind us like moving the candle like can we blow it out like I'm getting a little itchy and like I can feel a headache coming on and the partner goes oh pansy over here right when I tell you how disturbed I get when I witness stuff like that. It's because it is disturbing everyone. Like to those who are listening, that is disturbing because what did they just do? They told on themselves and they openly hurt their partner in a public space for an actual pain that was coming on for them. 
and they could have validated it and been like, oh yeah, honey, like, you know, like, we, yeah, like I'll take it out. Like, yeah, we can do it. Right. Or they could have did what they done, which is little you make you feel embarrassed for advocating for relief of pain. Do you hear how like, that's why I think this episode is so important to me because it mimics so much of my work of like, when I see some of these things in everyday life, I'm like, no, I'm not going to sit there and say that that's normal. I'm not. Right. And I want to talk about kind of like how to identify when like your self-advocacy is being challenged because that person is like genuinely trying to understand what's happening. And they also, maybe the particular way that you're approaching an advocacy moment is somehow like brushing up into their autonomy and they are like confused about how to proceed. I want to talk about that versus the difference between like that situation where you just gave of like asking to blow out a candle doesn't affect this person like at all. And them putting up a hard time about it is absolutely unnecessary. And it's just communicating personal issues that they obviously have where they're either they've tied up their ego into your guys's public persona as a couple. And they are for whatever reason, feeling like their ego is bruised by you having a sensory need in public. Like, I don't know. And then like, that's the other thing with the, um, the gift. Like if, if you gave a gift and it was like sensorily not capable to be enjoyed by that person, but they've like wrapped up their ego and their like personal value in being a gift giver. And now they feel personally rejected as a human being. Like you're not rejecting the texture of the shawl. You're rejecting them as a human, right? Like those are some reasons why sometimes people like are so like rude and mean when you self-advocate for a sensory need. But there are other situations. And this is where the nuance I wanted to talk about where maybe the way that you're asking to be accommodated does actually brush up against their autonomy and you guys need to figure out a better way to compromise to where it feels equitable to both people. And this oftentimes happens. It can happen. Well, never mind. I'm not going to say often. I'm just going to say it can happen in either situation, whether we're talking about a sensory avoidant need or a sensory seeking need. Mostly what we've been talking about up to now is like those sensory thresholds, which typically happen in people who have like avoidant sensory avoidant type dynamics within themselves where too much sensory input is going to send them over the edge. But then there's also in the neurodivergent spectrum on the whole other flip side, there's sensory seeker neurodivergent people who like literally their nervous systems demand a lot of sensory input for them to feel regulated in their nervous system. So they need a lot of noise. They like to play with a lot of textures. You might even know kids like this. Like these are the kids that are in the sandbox and like literally digging that sand into their toes and into every texture that they can. These are the slime kids, right? These are like kids who love a ton of sensory input and they're moving their bodies and they're jumping all over you and they're yelling really loud. And that's just how they are. And guess what? Those kids grow up into adults. Now, most adults aren't jumping around in sandboxes, but they are still going to find ways to get those sensory needs met for themselves. 
And so if you are living in a household where one person's sensory input needs to be really high and then the other person's sensory input needs to be fairly low or regulated, we can have clash going on. And those are the really difficult dynamics sometimes to navigate that feel safe and equitable for both people. Because for example, if person, if Jamie's sensory need is, is she likes a lot of input. And one of the ways that she regulates after a long day of work is to come home and hop in the shower and blast music super loud. And she likes the water and the super loud music and she's singing. And at that time of the day, I'm also getting home and my sensor, the way I like to regulate is the exact opposite. And like, I'm trying to relax in my bedroom, like curled up with like my safe, like blankets and snuggles. And all of a sudden, like I'm getting this massive sensory input from like her shower situation. How do we have that conversation? Right. And if one person, if I'm the one who comes and I'm like, Hey, I really need like a quiet hour. You need to turn your music off. And she's like, well, I really need to like belt my music out and like get that sensory input. So you need to go sleep somewhere else. Like this is, I'm like, this is, I mean, it's like, it happens. Like literally these types of situations happen. And so then what can happen is then it just feels like this butting of heads where it's like, well, so what, like you get what you need, but I don't. Exactly. It's whose value. Especially, well, this is actually, I'm glad you brought up the two neurodivergent, like the two neurodivergent situation. Because, I mean, obviously we can do different ways, but this one is, let's say there is like, there isn't really even a discrepancy. It's just different presentations, right? And so now, and that's a really, this is what we want to talk about. It's very valid for this to be feeling like a tension point or a rub because now you're both having this conversation in your head, but also maybe with each other. Well, both of our needs are valid. And so are we going to have this conversation of like, who's it's kind of like a, a ch- like, a, what is it? The game of chicken, like, who's going to bow out first, and then comply and then what resent me later for it, right? Like that kind of thing. So here's the thing, there's not going to be we can't even sit here and give you a perfect example. But the best because there's going to be so many different scenarios where this happens. But I think the, the, the main thing that we could give you to walk away with would be, first of all, making sure this is a conversation and not a competition. Make sure it's a conversation and not a competition. Because right off the bat, when it feels like a competition, you're going to come in like artillery, like weapons up, like (laughs) it's good. Yeah. You're going to come in hot. Truly. You're going to come in hot. So when we're saying, all right, it is an entire skill set, right? What, what I just said is not an intuitive born with ability. It is an actual skill set to develop folks. And I'm not joking you. It is a hard skill set to develop. I've dealt with this with my partner. CA's experienced this. I've dealt with this as me and her friendship. Like we have to not go at conversations with competition energy or competitor energy, right? So if we come at it with conversational energy, both parties, okay, this is where, well, what's the difference, right? 
One of them is I'm in complete like attack mode. Like I need to defend myself and at the same time attack, right? Like I have to be like, like getting that out of me to tell you how important and valid my sensory seeking or my sensory deprivation is, right? So you're like pleading your case, right? Well, what would be different in a non-competition situation where it would be sounding more like a conversation is the baseline would be both of you are coming at it with, you know, each other's experience is valid. So you're actually not trying to convince them you're a freak for right. being sensory <laughs> right. stimulating. And the other person isn't saying you're yeah. a freak for being a cloistered person in the corner in a dark room. Like neither person are trying to like justify the rational experience, right? All right. So the baseline would be I validate your processing. There we go. Huge fundamental thing that has to be there. That would be a core element of the conversation. The next part of the conversation would be attempting to be dialoguing about the structure that would need to be in place for both of those valid demands to be met, okay? So both of you get home at the same time, right? And then start talking about the norms. In this case, this is why I'm only going to be able to use this example, but this is actually what I mean by you guys experiencing this skill is the navigation of this. You have to be able to navigate it together, all right? So what me, I'm looking at, what am I, the shower person? Okay, yeah, you're the blanket person. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd be looking at UCA and I'd be like, it's as important for me to know that I can do like my stimulation, like right at the end of the day. And it's, it's as important for me to do that as it is for you to do that. So first of all, I want you to know, like, it's important to me that you get this ability to like wind down straight off the bat, right? Then I would say, I typically play the bass really loud. One of the things that I I looked into briefly, but I didn't really like ever go and buy is like the ability to like do maybe like some waterproof like headphones or like some of the ones that are like not going to glitch out if I have them in the shower. And that way I can get a lot of stimulation and really, really loud. I can still get the water but it's not going to like take over the house, right? That would be, I'm, I'm totally willing to like figure out if that can work for me, right? And you might be like, well, you know, I'm willing to maybe kind of like go into the room, like maybe 15 minutes later, like you adjust the time. So like, you know that like, if you know, and I know it's important for you to sing sometimes. So like, what I would say is if you really want to get that done, like get some of that belting out while I'm getting all my stuff done in the kitchen for those like, you know, and then obviously like, I'll like maybe like tap on the door and be like, Hey, I'm in here, whatever. Right. Right. I mean, there's a million ways to navigate the actual negotiation. The point is to even get to a healthy negotiation space is that what Jamie said, like that ground level stuff has to be laid out to where you're not feeling activated. You're not feeling defensive. Both people's situation is valid and we are working together to collectively 
come up with a creative solution. And we might, it might be trial and error for a couple of weeks until we figure out like what actually works. But this is an ongoing conversation where both people are putting in effort to make sure that the other person feels safe to be themselves and to have the sensory experience that they need to have to feel regulated and validated and calm and safe and loved in their own homes. And so this is like a skill set that can be applied. This is the situation that we used, but this can be applied to differing food sensitivities. Some people like really spicy food. Some people like really bland food. Some people like really crunchy food. Some people can't stand the sensation of crunching in their mouth, like, et cetera, et cetera. Like I could go on forever. There's a million different types of sensory discrepancies that can go on, but this is like the skill set to apply. And it starts with that every, like both situations are valid. Both perspectives are valid. We can respect that. And even if you're dealing with a non-neurodivergent partner and a neurodivergent partner, that non-neurodivergence experience also still is valid. So if it's like a food issue and they, right, like they're Italian and they love like tons of like flavorful, garlicky, super intense, flavorful food. And then like they end up with somebody who only likes buttered noodles and like, well, at least we can share the pasta together. I'm just not going to be putting the, the Romesco sauce on it, you know? So it's like, are we both though coming to the situation where we are respecting the other person? Neither person is really asking the other person to change who they fundamentally are and what like is deeply integrated into their life experience and their nervous systems regulatory experience. We're not talking about changing that kind of stuff. We can compromise circumstantial bits and pieces of our lives to make sure that we're living harmoniously, but we're not asking that other person to just stop liking garlic or just start liking garlic. Like we're not asking. Yeah. We're not going over like your actual autonomy. We're just saying, okay, if you don't like garlic and I super love it, how can we both still enjoy our lives together without feeling like we're, you know, and one of the things before we, yeah. One of the things before we go, I want to, I want to, I want to talk about this briefly because I've realized this, you know, I mean, both CA and I have neurodivergent children and like, I think, Raising neurodivergent children has like opened my eyes to how easily this stuff can happen. And, you know, we are not saints and angels or whatever. Like we literally have to trial and error this stuff as well. All right. So one of the things that I thought was important for us to talk about, like relationship wise, like when we're talking to our partners is to be very mindful to not reassert a narrative over their natural experience or like engagement with the world. Okay. So I'm going to give an, I'm going to get a quick example here, right? Let's say this person has done a lot of work to try to like, they, they, let's say they have a high stress job. They get a lot of cortisol pumping through them and they've started to realize that when they, in order to be a, like a present partner, a present parent, when they, um, you know, and I know some of this isn't always possible. All right. But let's say in this case, you know, they have like an hour before the kids come home. Okay. They go upstairs and they like sit in the bath for like 20 minutes. Right. They come home, they run the bath for like five minutes, they sit in it for 20 and then they're back down a half an hour later. Right. If the partner involved 
is reassigning a narrative to that. Like, you're a prima donna. You're lazy. You're um, inattentive to me, right? It's like, this is those conversations that need to happen. Because whatever narrative is in their brain is literally like a poison. And I'm being serious, okay? Because the more they believe that, the more anytime they're truly, they've, they've, they've hacked their brain and they realize when I do this, I am more able to have deeper conversations with my partner. I can be present. I can make dinner with ease. I can help my kids with my homework. I've been able to figure this out. And that's one of the things that I've been able to like rely on to help regulate me from the demand of my day, right? But then think that's why I had to give the caveat because if you did this with kids, this would be very problematic. But the reason why this is so hard is like, if the partner's narrative is that half an hour was a half an hour that I wanted with you and you're selfish, right? How easy is it? Like I'm sitting here and I'm like, dude, if I had a partner that did that, I would do that narrative. I would. I'm being serious. I'm being so honest. If my partner came came home from a day where they woke up at seven o'clock and got home and let's say my kids got home at like, I don't know, four and they got home at three and they spent a half an hour in the bathroom in a bath, I'd be like, fuck you. Like, I literally be like, you're so fucking selfish, (laughs) right? But it's not until I can have a dialogue and be like connecting the dots where like those days that he does that, he's, he's more engaged with the kids. He's listening to my day. He's listening, right? And I sit there and it's like, That's where that self-advocacy has to be taught. Like we do have to have those conversations, right? Because it's like, you know, it's like resenting your wife for getting that Starbucks, right? And yes, we got to keep in mind finances. There's a million nuances to these things. But let's say it's not breaking the bank for you to get one time a week a 450 drink, right? But then that person realized that they, that that part of their week really helps them just like center. And they're like, I just like the drive to go. And then I just, you know, I talk to the people at the counter. It's like really helpful for me to get out of the house. And then I just sit in the car for like 15 minutes and I drink it and I enjoy it. And no one's asking me questions and I'm in complete silence and I'm just like really present to myself. But if my partner goes, Oh, Miss Primadonna going to get her $5 Starbucks drink? Really? Again? It's like, it's a big difference between someone going to Starbucks spending $5 a week and going to Target and spending $500 a day, right? Like, we know there's nuance here, okay? So folks, like, don't at me. Actually, I get it. I understand that. But it's like... there, There is nuance. But what I wanted to talk about was literally what you just said is what ends up happening in dynamics where a person is not allowed to regularly do that, like, maintenance work. That $500 spending spree at Target is actually a lot more likely to occur when that person hits their threshold and they now go nutso and totally overspend because they literally have been neglecting that need for like that little tiny like splurge on themselves to help themselves feel special, help themselves feel regulated. That once a week, 15 minute, $5 drink will get replaced with a three hour long 
$500 spending spree at Target and that, or in the situation with the bath, right? If we don't let that person regulate with their bath, yeah, you might get that extra half an hour with them, but they're an asshole the whole time mm. because they're completely unregulated, right? So it's like, would you rather have an unregulated person walking around like a live wire or would you rather allow for those accommodations and that regularity of that like nervous system maintenance to occur so that they can be the best version of themselves? Exactly. Exactly. And so this is where I think some of this is adaptation and ability to be aware of like the situation you're in. So for people who don't have kids, it might not be as like complex for your partner to take a bath. But let's say you do, or you have a couple of kids and you're like, dude, I need your help at the end of like when they get home from school, right? That would be a talking point that you guys would have to figure out, right? And like, like, I'll, I'll speak briefly before we go like this actually did happen in my relationship recently where the timing that my partner was working was like really caught like there wasn't enough time for like regulation there was a lot of like time issues and I like sat my partner down and I said listen I don't want you to quit your job I don't want you to go part-time but is there any way to have a real conversation with your you know upper management and say could we look at the logistics of my schedule to make it more possible for me to have a couple of extra time slots where I'm being able to be present when my kids come home so I can like be more present to my fit, right? And I sit there and I go, that's what it sometimes takes, guys. Like it's literally like if you look at your day and it's so demanding that you're like shutting down. Sometimes it's about like renegotiating the demand and like, it's not always going to be perfect because not everyone has the luxury to just like renegotiate their schedule. But like, those are the hard conversations where it's like, you're a zombie. You're a zombie when you get home. Right. And it's like, what do I do with that? Right. And so this is where it's like, it's the communication, it's like the validation. And then it's like the negotiation. You have to sit there and say, how are we actually negotiating this? Not just talking the awareness out of the situation, but how are we actually negotiating a real life lived experience that shifts around this conversation? So let's leave it at that. I know we have to hop off, but, um, Right. Yeah. I don't think we're done talking about this. We're probably not done talking about this, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll, uh, come right back at you with, uh, with probably the next, the next phase of this. Um, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time. Thank you so much, y'all, for tuning in. If anything we said resonated, please subscribe and leave a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. This absolutely helps us grow, and we really do value your voice on this podcast. So if you have anything you'd like to contribute, any tips, any topics, or if you just want to say hi, you can email us at unlearned at recollectedself.com. You can find us on Instagram at the unlearned podcast or individual Instagrams at recollect itself and CAs is at embracing divergence. You can also find us over on TikTok under those handles. If you want to join our Patreon for $5 a month, you can be our coffee fiend club member. And that's going to give you access to our podcast within a podcast, which is called unhinged. 
This is basically where we let loose. Completely unedited. We are literally just shooting the breeze, having fun. You can see our full personalities. And it is a blast, honestly. It's pretty fun. So if you want to join us, you can find that at patreon.com slash unlearned. And that's it. The last thing I want to tell you is I want you to be brave enough to fight for the person you want to become. And this is how we do the work.